Welcome to Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective podcast, where we meet experts from all walks of life to learn their intrinsic motivation so that they can share it with the world. What do we have in store today? Stay tuned to find out more. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I am David. And today our guest is the real life, if we could say, Forrest Gump. <laughs> if we, in his brief introduction, and, and we'll get more into it as the podcast goes on, but I think Ari, the per- and I'll give you his full name, but the person we're going to interview has so many experiences that I'm sure when he looks back, he would question, like, how did this happen? And even on his site, he's like, I've been through a lot. And as we all know, if we were through everything we we're supposed to know, then we wouldn't be here. So our guest is here because he had so much more in store that he may or may not even know. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Ari Gunsberg to the podcast. Welcome, Ari. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, nice to be here. Thanks for being there. Absolutely. And so uh, I, before we had gotten on, we were talking about one of your excursions, um, which you have many. So before we jump into any particular activity, if you could give a little bit about your background and uh, what you are currently doing that makes you happy. Okay. So I work in marketing. I am, that's my old job, I guess you could say, because I'm currently working on building up in, into becoming a motivational speaker and into getting out in front of people and in front of the audiences and just connecting with them and, and helping people to be more than what they currently are. And Part of that is another little side project that I started, which is a wilderness business. And that's one of the projects I was just telling you about where I ended up in Yosemite unexpectedly this summer. I had no idea that I was heading out to California until about a week or two before I went. And uh, I was able to make it work. And so right now I am doing marketing still to pay the bills and doing stuff to make me happy is the motivational speaking, the, motiv- the motivational stuff, and then the, the, the wilderness stuff where I get to help people who have never experienced the wilderness before or who have experienced it to some degree, but I help them to experience it in a much more intense setting, depending on what they want, obviously. You know, I'm not, I'm not t- taking people out into the middle of nowhere if they don't want to be there, but I can sit there and I can introduce them to different varying levels of the wilderness as they would like to experience it. Now, when I think of the wilderness, I think of an old Ice-T movie where he had gone out with his friend to the wilderness, and he thought they were going to go hunting, and it turns out he was the hunted. So would that be your extreme <laughs> package? <laughs> we, don't, we don't bring guns, so that's, that's one, you know, we just do not, no, I'm kidding. Uh, we, don't, we, do, we do bring knives, but uh, we, we're not doing any hunting or hunted or anything like that. So there is, I, I think that, survivalism and wilderness tend to get mixed in with each other. And so what I'm doing is not really survivalist experiences, right? So a survivalist would be, let's go out into the middle of nowhere with nothing but a knife or with nothing but a bow and arrow or with nothing. Or, you know, you would sit there and you would limit what you would have when you're out in the backcountry out in the wilderness. And then you would try to survive with just that. But what I'm looking to do is I'm, you know, saying here's your gear list, here's the stuff that you're going to need to be safe, to be warm, to be dry, to to be able to experience the wilderness in as close to a safe way as possible. And then everybody brings their gear. And then because we all have gear, we're able to, you know, uh, have as good, as good a time in the wilderness as we are permitted by nature's changing ways. Now, as a Which, child... I'm thinking as a child that 
I know I have. I don't know about you, David, but I used to get in trouble a lot because I used to always stare outside the window. And, you know, I'm daydreaming and my mind would wander. And then as an adult, you know, I'm sitting in this corporate tower, but I'm again looking outside the window because it's just calling me something else is out there that I should be doing that would make my life worth living. Is that where... Is that a similar story where you were doing marketing, as you say, to pay the bills, but the wilderness business is more of your, uh, your, what makes you tick? Yes, uh, quite so. So I work in front of a computer all day long, and I don't like it that much. Like, there's certain aspects to it that are amazing. You know, when you create, when you have nothing and you create it into something, when you're working on a new campaign, when you just launch a website, there, there, there are very good feelings there. But the act of sitting in front of the computer all day long, it just, it just doesn't mesh with, it doesn't help me feel alive. Let's put it like that. And so about a year ago or so, I was in the car with my wife. We were traveling somewhere or another. And I was talking about, you know, what, what am I passionate about or what would I like to do? And this is, I believe, in addition to the motivational speaking thing that I was already starting to get working on, and I mentioned that I had always wanted to do stuff with wilderness. And I was like, but it would be really hard because I don't, I don't know how I would leave a few times a year for three days, five days, ten days. And she was like, I think I could do it. And I was like, are you serious? And she said, yeah. So, so with that, I said, great, and started putting everything into motion to get this wilderness thing off the ground. And we ended up having our first trip this past winter. We did ice climbing and winter mountaineering in UA, Colorado. And it was a blast. And so, and then since then I did two small trips this, this summer, both one of them was scheduled. One of them, like I said, was unexpected, but it was due to the scheduled one. And um, so now I have a, it's small. It's, it's not like something that I'm going to become rich off of or anything, but it's, it's something I'm very passionate about. And it's, and it's an opportunity to help people experience, the wilderness like like they've never seen it before, you know? Absolutely. I'm thinking, uh, if I may, with, with marketing, as you're saying, you're starting from nothing, and then you get to see this baby happen where you have a lot of uncertainty, and then it's, it's running smoothly, and then you just kind of tweak it. And does it feel the same way as far as you have an idea? Because the wilderness can, may not always be a... Uh, conforming to what you want, right? You have to work around wilderness. So give us an example of what it's like as far as what you planned and then how it may have gone awry, but then ultimately it turned out to still be a great event. Well, so far, uh, not a single trip that I've initially planned has gone off, meaning nothing's worked yet, but that's okay. And it happens to be that as long as you expect the unexpected, the unexpected is not going to mess you up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, okay, so now let's just talk about this recent trip to Yosemite because I think that that's a really good example of what you were asking before. Uh, I was asked to go to these two guys, that these two 21-year-olds decided that they wanted to go backpacking somewhere. They were thinking about the Appalachian Trail. One of their dads was like, why don't you do Yosemite? So they were like, sure. So they went. They, they booked all their tickets. They're getting ready to go. And the dad starts looking a little bit more into Yosemite, starts seeing mountains, cold, hot, heat, hydration, hiking, trails, off trails, huge expanses of park that, that nobody has, you know, without knowing where you are, you can't find your way out if you get lost. Uh, bears, mountain lions, all sorts of things that started getting him a little bit nervous about sending two guys who had really had no experience in nature out into the middle of nowhere. So when he saw that I was doing the overnight camping trip for another one of the sons, and he started, I guess he must have looked at my website and seen that I do this type of stuff, right? I know him through other ways. So when he saw that I do this type of stuff, he texted me the second day of this camping trip, and he said, hey, I've got a hiking proposition for you. And long story short, basically he had me go on the trip with his, with his son. So we, his son was looking through a guidebook and he found a very strenuous 46 mile trip that is recommended to do in six to seven days. And he said, let's, let's do it in three. And so we were all kind of trying to explain it to him that, you know, 
46 miles with 7,000 feet of climbing and backpacking. I don't know if we're going to be able to do that in three days. <laughs> and <laughs> I, yeah, it, it, it would be very intense to do it in three days. And, yeah. and you know, because it's hard in, when, when you're used to walking around, right? And especially if you're very fit, you know, you're like, what's the problem? I, I walk four miles an hour, right? Four miles an hour is like 10 hours of walking. Why should that be such a big deal? But, but 46 miles in the front country and 46 miles in the back country are very different. And then those, those elevation miles make a huge difference as well, right? Because when, when you have to climb, let's say, 1,000 feet over the course of a mile, it might take you an hour or more to do that one mile. Plus, you're lucky 30 to 45 pounds on your back, so and it just changes everything. Oh, you need water? Great. We have to stop at a lake and filter the water, and that might take 45 minutes. So over time, you know, he started to adjust to the idea that maybe 46 miles over three days was a bad idea. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, basically. And then when we got there, actually, I, I started watching the news because there was this whole Ferguson fire going on in California at the time, which was happening at the time. It was a very small contained fire. And, and over the course of the weeks afterwards, it blew up. And I think when I started watching it, it was around 3,000 acres. And when, when we, a week or two after I got home, it was up to like 54,000 acres. Whoa. So, I mean, that forest fire was just blowing up all over the place. And so that, that really messed us up because Saturday night, our flight was Monday morning. Saturday night before that, I checked the news and the whole, there's this road over there called Glacier Point Road, which is where the trailhead for what we wanted to do was, and they shut it down for fire operations. So now we definitely have to make new plans. When we got out there, we, we sat down with a ranger and, you know, who was offering us the, uh, the permit because he needed a permit to go backcountry camping out there. And we discussed some plans with him. And, you know, I, I put it up to the, to, the, to the guy who brought me out. I said, which one of these plans do you want to do? And he picked a plan. And so we did it. And that worked great up until day two. So the first day we did like 10 or 11 miles with some feet of climbing and stuff. We did a cathedral lake. And, sun, and Sunrise High Sierra Camp, and then we camped out at the second Sunrise Lake, if you're ever looking at a map of Yosemite. And the next day, we went to do, it was, it was, it's about an 11-mile round trip, hiked to something called Clouds Rest, which, if you've heard of Yosemite, there's a, a very famous climb called Half Dome, which you need to climb using steel cables. And you need to, to request permits six months in advance, and it's not even definite that you'll get permits, and it's very hard to get it. And then even once you get it, it's very hard to get up. It's, a, it's an extremely uh, strenuous climb. But Clouds Rest is very close by. It's a little bit further walking-wise, but it's a little bit close. It's a little bit less intense of a climb. So, and, and you don't need permits, which is the greatest part of it of all. Plus, it's a little bit higher than, than Half Dome. So we said, let's do Clouds Rest, and we started hiking towards it. We got a mile, mile and a half into it. And we turned the corner, and we, we had been told on the way out that Yosemite was closed, like the whole park. Some other lady in the backcountry had gotten a text message in the middle of the night saying the park is closed. And we saw some people at a trailhead, and they said, no, the park is not closed, just the valley. So we were like, okay, good. But it was still, it's like everything, everywhere that you were smelled like a campfire. And because this fire was so close by, and everything was hazy, but, but we were hoping not too hazy. And we continued on our way to Clouds Rest. We turned a corner, and we looked in front of us, and it's just a wall of white. The haze was so bad, you could see nothing. You could see 500 feet ahead of you, maybe. And typically in Yosemite in the summer, it's bright blue skies. You could see 20, 25 miles. So we had a little conference, and we said, you know what? Let's, let's cancel our plans for Clouds Rest. And we saw how bad the, the haze was getting, so we said, let's go back to our campsite because we were leaving our camp where it was. Let's pack up our stuff and go instead to what we were going to do on Thursday. And then we'll go out of here. We'll camp at a regular campground and then try and go to the northeast part of the park, which is as far away as possible from the fire. So hopefully be able to salvage our last day and do some hiking out there. And so that's what we did. We, we went back and we, and we did a little off-trail hiking, and we saw a, a really cool lake that's way off-trail. And we went out to the front country again. We camped out overnight. And then we, we had another situation the next day where nature changed our plans for us. I don't know if you guys want to hear about that. No, we love when uh, nature actually has better plans for us. And we're the ones that, you know, uh, uh, 
I may be misspeaking for you, David, but it's always funny. We always call them Godwinks, or if we want to make plans, I mean, we want to make God laugh, make plans. So you're right. out of nature, so you're dealing with this daily. <laughs> right. So, I mean, there's, I think there's a Yiddish saying like that, and I, I, I butcher it quite a bit because I don't really know Yiddish, but I think it's mantras that God laughs, but, which is like, you know, man plans, God laughs. <laughs> so we, the next, on Thursday, we wanted to climb this mountain at the northeast, part of the park called Mount Dana. It's about just over 13,000 feet. And about halfway up, you know, 500 feet above the tree line or so, at like 11, around 11,500 feet. It's just an estimate because I didn't have an altimeter, altimeter, however you pronounce that. Uh, we were going up, and I kept on looking at the clouds and telling the guys, I'm like, I don't like how those clouds look. I don't like it. I don't like it. And then finally I heard thunder. And thunder above the tree line is not something you want to hear because those storms are coming straight to that mountaintop and there is no cover. You are the highest thing around, you know? Mm. So when that thunder roared, I was I screamed up to them. I was like, we're going down and we're going down now. And then we just <laughs> hightailed it down that mountain. It took us like 45 minutes or an hour or so to climb. So it was like eight or 10 minutes to get down because it was hiking, climbing, not like climbing, climbing. But we just, we just ran down the mountain and about, you know, when we were still four or five minutes away from the trailhead, we, started getting some rain and boy was that cold rain up there because even the trailheads are about 10,000 feet wow so Ari so since you mentioned you know being in Yosemite and Half Dome and stuff what did you think of um, I'm sure you've probably heard of him uh, uh, free climber Alex Honnold when he uh, climbed Half Dome did you ever see that I did not see that so I'm familiar with free, did he free climb it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's on YouTube. His name was Alex. He did it about five years ago. His name was Alex Honnold, and he's a free climber. And uh, ABC News or CBS News was there, whatever, and he free climbed um, Half Dome and El Capitan. He's done both of them. So, I mean, I my, my real honest opinion of anybody who free climbs is kind of that it's idiotic. <laughs> and I'll tell you the reason. You know, I, I have the greatest respect for people who can climb stuff like that and make it down safely in a free climb. Yeah. I just, it's it's not even like one small, simple mistake and that's it, done, you're dead. No, I know. You know, hey. so, so there's there's something else called free uh, deep water soloing, which I've always meant to do, but I've never gotten a chance to. And that's something that I would do, and that's something that I don't think it's crazy to do. And basically yeah. you, find, you find a good cliff that overhangs like a lake or a large deep body of water and you climb it without ropes, but then worst case scenario, you fall down into water, you know, so you're able to walk away and fight another day. Yeah, but, yeah. but the idea of, and I'll tell you one of the, one of the big things that, that makes me say that is that there's a story, and I don't know what the guy's name was, but there's a story that me and my climbing buddies used to talk about of this guy who used to climb, you know, he was like one of the world's top climbers. And he went to go free solo uh, Seneca Rock, which is down in West Virginia. It's maybe like a, it's a multi-pitch climb of maybe 300 feet or 900 feet or whatever it is. And the whole way up is supposed to be like, let's say, five, grades 5.5 five through 5.7. And, and just to give you an idea, 5.5 uh, five through 5.7 to a climber is basically almost climbing a ladder. You know, it's big, thick holes you can really grab hold of. And they're really close together, so it's like it's like fairly easy, you know. And he just he just slipped in one point. Yeah, and that was it. He was done. So free climbing is awesome. Greatest respects for anybody who does it, but kind of in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, what are you thinking? You know, it's it's the same thing as when I'm driving around, I see a guy driving a motorcycle without a helmet. You know, it's it's great. Granted, as long as nothing goes wrong, I'm sure it's a much more pleasurable ride. But there's always that one time, you know? Yeah. And they even, you know, they had cameras there. They had another guy that was on ropes, actually, you know, kind of following along and filming it. And me personally, I, you know, I have a fear of heights. So when they were showing the angles where you could just see all the way down, like over them, all the way down, to, man, I'm just, <laughs> just gives me shivers just thinking about it. But he was so calm. And he just didn't even blink. He just did it without 
zero fear. And I found out that I was with you. It's like, God, that's the most craziest thing. One little thing and it's over. But he just, you know, no fear and he just does it without even blinking. I always thought that was impressive. So I just wanted to see what your opinion of that was. Yeah, I mean, so so there's, I mean, there is other stuff. So so they they grade terrain, and I'm still learning the grades, but they grade terrain, I believe, class one through class five. And so before I was talking about the climbing scale, five seven five five, that those are those are marks on the the five the five grade scale, right? So yeah. you know, and and like a grade one would be like walking on sidewalks. It's level basically. So you know, when you get up to like grade three and grade four terrain. You know, there are people who may have to rope up for it just to be a little bit safe. Or, you know, some guys might sit there and say, look, we have to rope up for this stuff. But so that's the type of stuff that, you know, depending on how it looked, I mean, I might be a little bit more inclined to say, you know, look, we don't really need to rope up. Let's just follow the rule of don't fall. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, you know, and that's like in, in, uh, in winter, like I was talking to the gentleman who's, guide company we used, right, and he was telling me about the guide, and he said, look, you know, he regularly does class three and class four terrain without ropes, right, class three is where you start maybe would use a rope, and class four is where, like, a rope would be recommended, not like a, not like a rock climbing rope, but to, like, rope the climbers together so that if one person fell, the other people could catch them, so, you know, he says he does that stuff without ropes, and I'm like, well, what does he do if he falls? He's like, it's very simple, he just doesn't fall. Yeah, so yeah, but that's but that's that's not like steep vertical walls. Yeah. So, Ari, do you have any like uh, aspirations to like you know climb Mount Everest or anything like that? <laughs> um, I'll tell you what I was telling somebody a little while ago when I think when they brought up Everest, I think it was the kids on the camping trip. Uh, I told them that I'm beginning to develop an unhealthy obsession with Everett. Unhealthy because if I ever decide to act upon it, I mean, there is there is some level of danger to it. It is certainly a lot less dangerous now than it was, let's say, 50 years ago or even 20, 30 years ago, but there is still quite some level of danger with it. I, you know, I, a big thing also is, you know, start with what you can do and before you get into the biggest. And so one of the things that I want to try and do is I want to try and, and climb a high-altitude mountain before I even think about Everest. And when I say high-altitude, I don't mean high-altitude compared to Everest. I mean high-altitude compared to anything else that we have in the States. So, like, um, the, the highest mountain we have in the States is in the continuous states, like not, not in North America, but it's down here in the, in the 48 Continental. That is Mount Whitney, and that's, 14, it's like, that's in the 14s. So I would like to climb that at some point. Um, and that's not even what I mean by high, high altitude. High altitude, I'm talking more like, let's say, Kilimanjaro, which is 19-plus thousand feet. And so the thing with, with a, lot of these, a lot of these mountains is that the higher up you get, the harder it gets. And the reason is less so because of the terrain, which some of them have very difficult terrain, and more so because of the altitude. You know, I mean, I mean, like just climbing Kilimanjaro. I believe Kilimanjaro is what they call a walk up. You know, you can just basically hike up to the top of the mountain. But as you get higher and higher in the altitude, it starts getting harder and harder to breathe, and it starts getting more and more dangerous just being up there. Now that all depends on how you adjust to the altitude. So before I, I'm going to go and try something that's at 29,000 feet, where you, you know, if you watch that um, documentary from. I forgot what channel, but they, they had a documentary a few years ago that ran a few seasons of it. You know, they, there are people who get up to 22,000 feet and they start having real problems. So before I start trying to do something like that, I like to see how I adjust to altitude at, at 19,000 feet or at 17,000 feet, et cetera. And then, and then, you know, go from there. But, you know, just, just doing something like Kilimanjaro right now would be like a really big achievement for me because I've never been up that high. You know, the highest I've been so far is 12, 12,500 feet. And, I mean, I, I felt fine, but you never know. Like, every 1,000 feet, 2,000 feet that you add up to the elevation, it, it raises the potential for things to happen, you know. And, and when you start getting up to, like, 18,000, 19,000 feet and above, that's when things like um, pace and shape start becoming an issue, and I believe those are 
high-altitude cerebral edema and high-altitude pulmonary edema, which basically is the brain or the lungs swelling with fluid just by being up at high altitude. So by taking it slow, you can avoid that, but you know, it's, it's always good to know how you react to the lower altitude before you start thinking about doing anything that's you know, above 8,000 meters. And Everest is well above 8,000 meters, and that's 8,000 meters they call the, uh, above that they call the death zone because the air is so thin and, and the body just starts turning on itself and eating its muscle, and it's kind of crazy what happens up there. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it takes, doesn't it take like a few months to climb Everest because you have to really, it's really important to adjust to the altitudes? Absolutely, yeah. So um, the little that I know about Everest basically shows that like, um, you know, a typical climbing schedule would be, I can't give it to you exact, but you know, you'll, you'll get there at least a month or two before you would be planning on summiting. So summit season is like late May typically. So people are arriving in April, maybe even late March, and then they're going to start to try and acclimate to the 11 or 12,000 feet, and then they try and go to base camp, and they're literally just hang out at base camp for a while. Base camp is 70,000 feet. And they just hang out at base camp for a while, just literally just acclimatizing to the altitude and letting their body get used to being at 70,000 feet, which is, you know, a huge jump. And then, and then they start as it starts to lead up to the time when they may be able to summit, they're going to start going up a little bit higher and then coming back down and going up a little bit higher and getting back down because then each time they go up, their body's going to throw a little bit more of a different chemistry into their blood, and that new blood chemistry is what helps them survive and what helps them actually thrive. I don't know. Everest, I don't know if I would want to call it thrive, but is what helps people survive and thrive when they get up to those high altitudes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, I'll just do you guys have any? Do you guys have any aspirations of climbing Everest? <laughs> yeah. I'll just read about people doing it and watch documentaries. But uh, I just, uh, Everest just chews people up and spits them out to me. <laughs> so I'm just yep. staying away from it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Everest. Everest does that. Yeah. You said that it's different today than it was, you know, 50 years ago. It's a lot easier to attack it. Are there other hacks? Like, you know, before they didn't have uh, pills for motion sickness for those going on cruises. Are there other bio biological hacks that you could do that makes it easier to go through those extremes? So they have a pill. It's called the, I think the company name is Dymox. And what that pill does is, I don't really have a good understanding of it. I have the understanding from the guides that I spoke to staff mentor. But basically, it, it tweaks the blood chemistry a little bit to create, I believe, more red blood cells, which helps oxygen move throughout the blood better, which helps with altitude. Now, you know, they say, you know, you can take the pill. But this, as far as I know, the pill is more like, let's say, let's say you were going out to Colorado to go skiing, and you're, you're going to stay at 8,000 feet, and you know you live at 1,000 feet, you're going to stay at 8,000 feet, and you go skiing, which is going to get you as high as 11,500 feet, but you're like, let's say, landing, going skiing for a day and a half, and then getting back on the plane and leaving. So, like, I think the pill would be good for doing that because it just helps you just get that really quick adjustment so you're not getting those counting headaches up at 12,000 feet. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know how good the pill is for going up Everest. Like, I don't think that it was developed for Everest. I think it was developed for high altitude, but... I don't know if it was developed for extreme altitude. And then, so other hacks that they have. So the reason why I think that it's easier is because the route is much more set and, and the guide companies have learned a tremendous amount. Now, it's, I, don't, I, I don't know if I want to say easier. I want to say a little bit safer because the guide companies now will sit there and say, look, we just can't do it. This is, this is not going to be safe. But, you know, they, they're, they're trying to run a company where everybody goes up and everybody comes down, even if they don't summit. Right, because I mean, on something like Everest, as soon as somebody can't walk, they're basically dead. You know, that's it's just the reality of being up that high when you're when because what they say is that every pound weighs about four pounds because there's so little oxygen and it's so intense to move around up there. So if you have a hundred hundred eighty pound person, that's the equivalent of a five hundred. Uh, 
120-pound person. So how do you break it down? It's, it's almost impossible. I mean, there are there are some rescues that happen at very high altitudes, but they're few and far between. So it's a little bit safer because they're, they're, they, I think they know a little bit more what to look for on the way up and because the routes are a little bit, the routes themselves are more set and more safe. They reset the route every single year. And, but but now, it, now we're getting into a, new, a different type of danger, meaning what used to be the danger forever, to my knowledge, and again, I don't know, is that you have this, this really intense mountain that's really, really tall and you don't know what parts are safe and what parts are not. And you don't know, you know, you're not used to what the weather patterns are and when the best time to climb is. And, you know, there's all this, these unknowns. Now we know all that stuff. So now what the new danger is, is too many people. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you hear about stories where somebody's standing at one spot waiting to climb up the ladder to get to the next spot and they're waiting for 50 other people. And like yeah. three of them are with a guide company that didn't do a lot of, you know, work with their people to make sure that they were in the right shape to do it. And these people are stuck and they can't move. And you've got 50 other people waiting and now those people are, I mean, it's cold up there. So they're, yeah. they're potentially getting frostbite. They're potentially losing a lot of energy. They're potentially running out of all the oxygen because you bring limited oxygen up with you. And, and that's where the danger has started coming in more so than, than anything else. Well, you know, I, I can remember the there was that documentary on that one climb that happened. I think it was in the late '90s that went just horribly wrong. And yeah, the uh, John Krakauer into thin air. Yeah, that one. Yeah, and I just remember them saying that two of the most experienced guys in the world climbing this mountain perished. I'm like, wow, that scared me. The one guy, right. you know, lost whatever, and then the John other guy, and Rob Hall. Yeah, yeah, and then, yeah, Scott Fisher, yeah, exactly, Scott Fisher, and then Rob Hall, I remember that whole thing was so sad because one of the people in the, in the, in the expedition was in so much trouble that you, you, they weren't able to do a rescue for him, so he was just resounding that, okay, this is it, I'm going to die up here, and he told Rob Hall, just go, save yourself, and Rob wouldn't leave him because he was the expedition leader. It's kind of like, you know, going down with the ship, and there's no way, I guess, he felt he could come down that mountain without someone, so he had, I think, a satellite phone, he had to call his wife, told him what was going on, and I ain't coming back, honey, and... You know, ended up hanging up and dying with that guy, the two of them, somewhere up on that. Yeah. Well, the storm, the st- I don't know that he just sat there and decided to die, but, I mean, the storm was really bad. And and also with that particular story, part of what I think went wrong, and it's not really my speculation, but more John Krakauer, who was there, you know, is that he had sat there and set up guidelines, said, if whatever, wherever you are, no matter where you are, by let's say 1 p.m. or 2 p.m. or whatever it was, you need to turn down because we need to have enough oxygen to get off this mountain. And yeah. he didn't follow the guidelines that he had set up beforehand, right? Meaning they were summoning at like 5 p.m., which is, which is absolutely crazy, right? So Everest mm-hmm. is, and I think it's like an 18-hour trip from Camp 4 up to the summit and back down, right? Because you can't stay on the summit for more than 20, 30 minutes or something. So they, they, a lot of people are leaving at like 1 in the morning. They, they have to leave between 11 p.m. and 1 in the morning. And sometimes they'll even leave earlier than that. And they're going for a very long, very grueling, very difficult 18-hour day or more. And so most people are hitting the summit at 6 a.m., 7 a.m., 8 a.m., and then almost immediately turning around. And so the fact that they were hitting the summit at 5 p.m. just sounds crazy. Really crazy, especially now. And yeah. the whole thing is that these mountains, they're known to have bad storms in the afternoon. So I don't think that they knew about this particular storm, but, but mountains like the, you know, the weather will often be clear in the morning and stormy in the afternoon. So, you know, if, if they had followed their original rules and said, you know, look, it's 2 p.m., we've got to turn around, instead of, like, the client being like, I just paid you six grand, get me to the top of the mountain. Yeah. You know, that's, that's where it comes, that's where it kind of gets, gets very difficult. And there was, there was stuff... There were things, if, if you read through the account, I mean, there were things going wrong, like left and right. Like, and that's, that's another thing that I've been seeing with nature. You know, So one of the things that with this nature wilderness company is I make people sign a waiver. I don't want to be, it, it's hard to be, I can't be responsible for that type of stuff, you know? Yeah. But, yeah. but so the wilderness is a dangerous place, but, but my belief is that if you 
recognize what the dangers are and you take as many steps as possible to mitigate the dangers and you are as careful as possible, then, then I don't want to say that it's a safe place, but it's a much safer place than if you're just willy-nilly about it and say, well, whatever, let's just go out. <laughs> you yeah. know, an example is that, is that I, on a recent trip, I, I recommended people bring some layering clothing just in case it gets cold. And they didn't bring it, which was fine because it didn't get cold. But if we had, if it, had, if the temperature had dropped by 40 degrees, then there was a real danger for hypothermia. You know, and yeah. and and that's I mean that's one of the reasons why I have a waiver because I'm not going to sit there and take responsibility for somebody who says, hey, you know what, I'm just not bringing that layering clothing. Yeah. Um. But but you know, so you you prepare for you, Expect the best, but prepare for the worst. Yeah. So, uh, Ari, your wilderness adventures, your J treks, is that just for uh, you know guided, geared towards the Jewish community, or is that for anyone could do the treks? Well, um, I don't mind taking anybody per se. the The fact is that the cost of the trips would typically be probably prohibitive for anybody except for the kosher community. Because it, it's you know it's, it's a little bit more complex to get the kosher food and to figure it all out. Oh, okay. Um, I'm very happy to, to arrange trips for anybody, but see, basically, I'm an extra step that is I don't want to say necessary, but very very helpful if you're trying to do a kosher trip. But if you're not trying to do a kosher trip, uh, I'll give you an example. This trip down in Uri, Colorado. Um, so I sat there and I found a guide company and I got and I arranged the kosher food and I made sure that we had a place to stay over here and I had the hotel and I had all the logistics figured out. Now, if you take the kosher food out of the mix, right, then if, let's say you guys want to go do the same trip, you call into a place, you find out who the guide companies are, you hire one of them, they sit there and they say, hey, do you want us to get the food or not? And you say, sure, get the food. And that's it, you're done. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas, whereas with kosher food, I mean, they don't, they don't, as an example, they don't make kosher backpacking meals. I had to invent them, essentially, using kosher ingredients and stuff. And, and, and so, I mean, if somebody was looking for somebody to take care of the logistics of a wilderness trip, I would love to help them out. If, but, but again, typically the, the numbers are not going to make sense except for the kosher consumer. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I was also thinking that you know, when, you, when you're out in nature and, and hiking or climbing the mountains and you come back down, you feel like a great sense of accomplishment. And I was wondering if on all of those excursions, that is what gave you the bug to become a mo- motivational speaker. Oh, good question. I actually got the bug to become a motivational speaker before that. Um, I, I did do a wilderness trip when I was much younger. I went on an outward bound trip. It was a 10, 11 day sailing and rock climbing trip. But the, the bug to become a motivational speaker came probably about a year, year and a half ago. I was talking to my brother, talking to my brother a lot about kind of like what to do that would fulfill me more, that, that I'm more passionate about. And we were going through stuff and, and I I don't remember exactly when, but I've, I had always wanted to try doing Toastmasters, and I went to Toastmasters, and I gave some speeches, and and I kind of started to see that, like, really, like, I, I really like doing this, and I, you know, I'm, I'm good at it. And so I started working towards getting different certifications inside of Toastmasters, different awards, and and that's what I've been doing. And then and then I put up marketing materials and stuff, and, and now I'm still working out the little kinks of exactly how to really build a following and get the get the word out and to get the fact that I am a motivational speaker out to people and stuff. And I, I've got different stuff in the in the different things in the works, like I'm working on a podcast. I have got this other orga, organization that I'm trying to get launched as you know, which it will be focused on helping people essentially build themselves up into becoming greater than what they ever thought possible, hopefully. That may sound a little bit far, I don't know, far-fetched, but, you know, a little bit ambitious. But if people are willing to do the work and, and you know, I'm, I'm trying to develop a program to have the, to help them be able to do it. 
But if people are willing to take the small steps that I will put into place, I, I truly believe that anybody really could work on themselves and just become better than what they ever were hoping for. That's why I really like you sharing your story, the, the different examples, and the extreme example with the Kilimanjaro, because I'm thinking you have two audiences. You have people like me that are weekend warriors, adrenaline junkies, and you know we have to do it within a certain time frame. Then you have more of the veterans that are that know to expect the unexpected. And as you were telling in your in your different stories, that you have to really manage a person's expectation because they may listen to you. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to bring these clothes, and then they don't bring them, and you know they're not taking it as seriously as you. But if it's on a bucket list, then you know it's something where they are motivated to follow what you what you have in store. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, this this particular program I was talking about it actually doesn't have much to do with the wilderness thing. It's more, it's more a program for anybody, uh, you know. And I can I can certainly send you guys information about it once we launch. But it's it's more a program for like anybody, anything, anywhere that that you can just sit there and and just put this program into place to really just help yourself. Because I mean, let, let's face it, right? People struggle everywhere. All people in all walks of life are struggling. They're having, they're having trouble. People who are rich are struggling with, with their own set of issues. People who are you know, having financial troubles are struggling with their own set of issues. Everybody's having these, all these different things that keep on popping up and, and problems and, 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 and struggles. And meanwhile, a lot of times people don't ever have that opportunity to say, hey, how can I fix this? What, can I, what steps can I take today that will create a better tomorrow? And so this, this is a program that is... That is focused on helping people to find a way to, to make that to make that um, to make that, that jump from thinking about just today to thinking about tomorrow and, and really to thinking about tomorrow also and, and and making their whole life better really as a result. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do, and, and I, I like the the fact that the theme that I that I'm hearing is to expect the unexpected. And I know that when we we started our podcast about a year and a half ago, we didn't know what to expect, right? And then we wound up speaking to people across the globe. And so, as your wilderness thing takes off, you may be surprised of people coming from other corners of the of the world just to be a part of your experience. So it, it, it may be a lot smoother and, and they may not have uh, hang-ups that others do where, you know, like you're saying, you, you may be separating motivational speaking in the wilderness as two different entities, but they may actually uh, combine together. Oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm a big part of what I'm hoping for is that, is that, I, can use, is that I can use the two of them inter, intertwine, you know, use the two of them together. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, I mean I, I, they, they're separate in the sense that um, I'm not trying to sit there and take people out into the wilderness to, to be able to speak to them in a motivational sense. But, but they're certainly intertwined in the sense that I'm hoping to be able to bring home stories from the wilderness trips to, to, to boost what I'm doing with the motivation of speaking, definitely. And, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, and, and I mean, thank God, I mean, you know, that, that whole wilderness business is, is you know, hopefully going to really take off and, and really help that whole motivational speaking thing. But I mean, you know, I, it sounded like you guys were reading through my website earlier when you said that, you know, I've just been through tons of crazy situations. And, and, like, even before the wilderness stuff came up, I mean, I had just, there's been so many different things that have happened in my life at different points that, um, that I'm hoping to, at, over time, be able to draw, pull back and look at different areas and say, hey, you know, how can I turn this into a motivational message, you know? Oh, absolutely. When we're in the middle of it, it's like, what, what is going on? And then that hindsight being 2020, you see what the, what the point of your experience that you had gone through, it was transformative, right? So I totally get that. Um, I, I do want to, because uh, you were talking about you had flown to Yosemite, so are you doing these tours around the, like they get in touch with you, you're in Ohio? I'm in Ohio, yes. Okay, so they get in touch with you, and then you pretty much pick a destination, and, and then that's how it works. Like, kind of walk us through what's it like once people get in touch with you to go on one of your wilderness excursions. 
Okay, so I basically there's two flavors. Uh, one is whatever you want, and one is organized trips. And so what, the initial way that I was going to open up the business was to do Outward Bound trips. Outward Bound has a very specific curriculum and a very specific way of doing things. And I, like I was saying earlier, I was on one of their trips when I was younger, and I would love to run kosher Outward Bound trips, which if I can ever fill one up, then I will. Uh, the other one is more of a whatever you want, you know, and that, that could be that you call me up and say, hey, I'd love to do some type of winter camping. Or it could be that you'll call me up and tell me exactly what you want and just don't have the time to plan and make it work. Like, as an example, um, there's a few guys who were going to do a trip to the Ptarmigan Traverse, which is up in the Washington Cascades, the, the three- to five-day backpacking trip in, in um, ice. I don't remember if there are glaciers also, but you know, there, are, there is some cramponing necessary, I believe. Crampons are those steel spikes you put on the ends of your boots so you can walk through ice and snow. I, through ice and compact snow. So there were guys who wanted to go do that, so they were going to plan their own trip, but, it, but their trip this year fell through. So if they get in touch with me this winter and say, hey, can you plan our trip for us? I know exactly what I'm doing. They just have to tell me how many people are going, and I have to just take care of all the logistics to make it all work. The, uh, you know, the other version of your own flavor is saying, hey, we really want to do something in winter. We really want to do something in summer. We want to do wet water rafting. We want to do kayaking. We want to do the Grand Canyon. We want to do... Uh, you know, climb a mountain, whatever it is. You, 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 if you tell me kind of like what type of experience you're looking for, I can figure out some options and then say, hey, you know, here's a few options that I found that all fall within the budget and that all fall within the parameters of what you're looking to do. Which one do you want to do? You pick one and then we just go forward with that. Uh, and as another example, which is another version of that, you know, pick your own, is I was... Um, right before the benefit bike ride that I do for kids with cancer. So I was hanging out in the hot tub drinking beers with some, of the, with some other people who were on that ride. And one of the guys hears about this stuff, and he's like, whoa, he's like, can you do corporate retreats? And when he started hearing about some of the, some of the trips that I've done, he's like, wow. He's like, I don't know if we can do something like that with these 60- or 70-year-old executives. And I told him, I said, listen, you know, you guys tell me how intense of a wilderness experience you guys want, and I'll make it happen. You know, like, we don't, in Yosemite, right, I'm about to get a little bit graphic, sorry, but in Yosemite, if you need to go to the bathroom number two, you have to dig a six-inch hole and, and, leave, and you know, then cover it up afterwards. There are other parks where you have to bring what they call wag bags or, you know, other stuff where basically it's, it's a bag that you have to make into and pack, they call it pack out your poo, you know, which means you have to take it out with you. Um, but, you know, just because, just because, that's what the regulations are. doesn't mean that we can't figure out a way to make it happen. Like, let's just take Yosemite as an example. If I were to design a corporate leadership retreat to Yosemite, I mean, I could talk to the rangers and figure out a way to, like, you know, if we, were, if, if we had guides or, or uh, people who were willing to carry the stuff out, we could use a bucket and make a makeshift toilet with a tent, you know, or, or, or even just dig a bigger hole and, like, make some type of latrine. Maybe I'm not sure how the, that works with the government regulations. There's ways... Maybe, maybe you would make a camp that's not there. You know, you figure, you figure out ways to do it, but you can make it so it's a little bit more comfortable than, okay, here's a shovel, go, go, go have fun. You know, and if, if one particular park doesn't work because, because any of the options that you're going to use to make the bathroom aspect of it a little bit more comfortable isn't going to work, then you pick another park nearby and you hike in or something. You know, there, there's, there's tons of ways to figure out a solution to what people want. And so, again, so if there if are older people on the trip but they want, like, a corporate leadership work trip that's out in the middle of nowhere, we can figure out a way to make that work and figure out a way to make it so that it's in a way that it's as comfortable as they want it to be. You know, we could, you know, take, because I, I would say that sleeping and bathroom are probably the two areas that people are most uncomfortable with, I would think. You know, <laughs> uh, I, I think, I think that that's, you know, the sleeping, the sleeping, you know, you can, you can just tell them to bring in a little bit thicker of a mattress or something. You set up a base camp, you can do, maybe like real blow-up mattresses and stuff. You know, there, there's different ways to do it that, that you can let people really feel like they've experienced the full wilderness experience but make it a little bit more comfortable for them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing because people always ask, does a bear take a shit in the woods? And apparently it happens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you know, when you got to go, you got to go. There's no, there's no, there's no two ways about it. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that that was very scenic, and and actually, uh, wow, looking at the time, we are at the top of the hour, so that kind of flew by pretty quickly. See, that was painless. <laughs> did Did you have any other questions, David? Uh, most of the questions I wanted to ask were about the the climbing and the Yosemite stuff. So, um, no, I think we had a good conversation. Awesome. Yeah, it sounds like this wilderness business is, is is going to be very fruitful, and it seems like you're really happy. You're not looking at the screen on a desktop or a laptop all day. You're out in the wilderness living the life, and, and hopefully everyone else that listens to this podcast will get a bit of that motivation just from listening to that. If they want to listen to or get in touch with a motivational speaker, they can do that and get in contact with you as well. But before they do that, they would need to know the websites and social medias where they can get in touch with you. Uh, My website is easiest to type in as ariguns.com. That's A-R-I-G-U-N-Z.com. And that is where it discusses the motivational speaking and the typical consulting stuff. And then so the wilderness stuff, which, again, is, is most beneficial for the coach consumer. But, again, you can get in touch with me for the wilderness stuff through either place. But the wilderness brand is called JTREX, and that's J-T-R-E-K-S, T-R-E-K-S.com. Perfect, perfect. And you have just been attuned to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I am David. Ari, it was a pleasure, man. When you are coming back from the wilderness, please stay in touch with us. Sure. Thank you guys so much. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks again for checking out another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective podcast. Please check us out on our website at intrinsicmotivation.life where you can click on the speak pipe button and leave any suggestions for a future podcast that you'd like us to cover. Also check us out on our social media sites. We have a YouTube channel, Facebook page, iTunes podcast, in addition to Stitcher and Google Play, all under Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. Check you out next time. Have a great day.